The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. That is one of the common passages in Jonathan Edwards' most famous graphic and horrifying sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, delivered in 1741. Edwards was of the Puritan era, though keep in mind that Puritans didn't call themselves Puritans. That was kind of a pejorative term given to them by others. They were called Puritans because they held on too much to the Roman Catholic traditions within the Church of England theology. They liked to call themselves professors, ones who professed the gospel, sticking strictly to the text. I'm W.F. Strong. This is Beyond Texas. Today we're going far away and long ago, 300 years, to pre-revolutionary New England. And we're going to focus on this one iconic sermon by Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the most famous sermon ever delivered on this continent. Edwards was himself scholarly and erudite. Educated at Yale, he looked as you would have expected him to look, tall, thin, and somewhat effeminate in the sense that he never did physical work due to spending long hours each week communing with the Holy Book and commentaries explaining it. His voice was of a mid-range tone rather than deep or booming, but his matter-of-fact scholarly tone made his angry God sermon really more terrifying for its stylistic understatement, I think. Jonathan's God was of the Old Testament, unforgiving, wrathful, revengeful, and I think, in the way he explains it, a little sadistic. Everything about Jonathan's theology could be described in four words. You are not worthy. Here's the heart of that sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. "'Tis to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were allowed to wake this morning in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given as to why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you haven't gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn service this morning. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you don't this very moment drop down into hell. Consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, 
that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against any of the demons in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder, and you have no interest in any mediator, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Well, that's powerful stuff. Keep in mind, though, if it helps, that Edwards was focused here on the unconverted. He was actually a rock star minister in his time. He was the pastor of a megachurch, or what would have been the equivalent of one for his time, the Northampton Church in Boston, with 700 or more members. And far from having his rhetoric turn them away, he was highly successful in bringing in many converts. There were people reported to have fainted during this sermon. Scare tactics worked. Some believe that Edward's style would have been particularly powerful to a population of farmers who spent a great deal of time isolated in dark forests and pitch-black nights where it was easy for his powerful words to illuminate and amplify their fears of the unknowable, their fears of an uncertain eternity. As I already pointed out, his style of delivery for sinners in the hands of an angry God is not what you would expect. He didn't speak in a dramatic or loud or particularly animated style. He read his script like a scholar. He advanced through his arguments focusing on what he considered the unassailable, unquestionable logic. It was syllogistic. God despises the wayward sinner. You are a wayward sinner. Therefore, God despises you. He was talking about the unsaved and unbaptized, the sinner that had not come to Jesus yet. It was his way of persuading them that the only way they could escape that condition of being unworthy and damned to eternal fire was to get baptized and to commit themselves entirely every second to God, still realizing that they were not worthy ever and would never be worthy to be saved, but it was God's goodness that would nevertheless save them. Now, this was in stark contrast to the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitefield, his contemporaries, who focused on the hopeful and inspirational love-centered words of Jesus, preaching that God's grace was free in all and free for all. Accept him, and you are saved. Edwards preached hellfire and eternal damnation. Whitefield and Wesley preached love and eternal salvation. It was free for the asking. And they did it from horseback, preaching often in the fields and by the streams as Jesus had done. But Wesley was in England mostly, and George Whitefield was in the colonies. Benjamin Franklin said of George Whitefield that he would give anything to be able to say the word, oh, as beautifully as Whitefield could. But both styles, the terrifying and the comforting, were successful in winning converts. Together, they and ministers like them empowered a decades-long religious revival and a fervor in New England that was called the Great Awakening. Edwards was a smart man. He was educated at Yale and at one point was president of Princeton, or what would become Princeton. He read and wrote voraciously, and he was admired by his contemporaries as a kind of walking encyclopedia. That was the old way of saying he was a human Google. 
Edwards stressed hell in creative ways to help his church understand how horrible it would be and how long all eternity would last. When I was a child in a fundamentalist conservative church myself, I often heard sermons that focused on hell. One such sermon asked me to imagine a bird that would pick up a grain of sand from a beach and carry that grain of sand a light year away into space and leave it, and come back and get another grain of sand and take that a light year away and leave it, and keep on with this process each time carrying that one grain of sand a light year away. Eventually, over many eons, the little bird would have transported the entire earth a light year away, one grain of sand at a time. When the bird had completed his task, the minister said, it would have only been sun up in hell. In New England at this time, all towns had their own little governments which were organized and ruled by the churches. You couldn't vote unless you were a man and a member of the church. That is why governments in New England at the time were called theocracies, because the communities were ruled by God and the scripture and ministers. See the movie The Crucible and you'll get a good idea of the milieu of a church-governed community in those times. They didn't believe in democracy because if the people were to rule, then who would rule the people? To the ministers, government should be totalitarian because God was totalitarian. Democracy of the people was not godly. God should rule and his regents on earth, the ministers, should be in charge of shepherding the earthly flock. These were the rules of theocracy. Only church members could have a say in who would be their civil leaders. Ministerial salaries should be paid by taxation of the people. Once a minister was named to a pulpit, he could not be removed except for extreme theological failure. The congregation must yield its judgment to the minister because, as one minister of the time, Cotton Mather, claimed, God would not let him make a mistake. The 150 years of theocracy and its excesses is what led the founding fathers of American democracy to separate the two to free people from the dangers of religious tyranny, and particularly the danger of having one state-sanctioned religion. As the population of pre-revolution America surged, there were more secular people than there were formal members of the church. One minister at the time was surprised when he claimed in a sermon that most colonists had come to the New World for religious freedom, and a man shouted out, well, some of us came for the fish. He meant some came, as has been true of immigrants always, for entrepreneurial reasons, for better income and a chance at a life of material abundance. And it was these worldly pursuits that created a complacency and comfort in people that Edwards abhorred at least theologically. He said in his Sinners at the Hands of an Angry God, How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is the dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again, however moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it whether you be young or old. There is reason to think and there are many in this congregation now hearing this sermon that will actually be the subjects of this very misery in all eternity. 
We know not who they are, or in what seat they sit, or what thoughts they now have. It may be that they are now at ease, and hear all these things without much disturbance, and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons promising themselves that they shall escape. If we knew that there was one person, and but one, in the whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of it. If we knew who it was, what an awful sight it would be to see and look upon such a person. How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and bitter cry over him, but alas, instead of one, how many is it likely in this congregation who will remember this sermon from hell? And would it be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time before this year is out? And would it be no wonder if some person that now sits here in some seat at this meeting-house in good health and secure should be dead before morning? Those of you that finally continue in your natural condition that shall keep out of hell the longest will be there in a little time. Your damnation will not slumber. It will come swiftly and in all probability very suddenly upon you. And it is doubtless the case that some that heretofore you have seen and known your friends, that never deserved hell any more than you, and that heretofore appeared as likely to be now alive as you, their case is past all hope. They are crying at this moment in extreme misery and perfect despair. But here you are, in the land of the living and in the house of God, and you have an opportunity to obtain salvation, what would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day's opportunity as you now enjoy? Well, Edwards eventually left his church to go to a smaller one. He was actually pushed out of his church because of a strict difference of opinion about who could have communion. He believed he believed that only true believers, baptized, professed believers, could have communion and be members of the church. He lost. He was dismissed. He was taken in at another church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where he worked as a missionary to Native Americans. Edwards was more successful, actually, in writing religious treatises during this time than he was in converting Native Americans. This is a good time to insert the famous speech of Red Jacket, chief of the Seneca tribe, concerning his response to Christian missionaries. He was not responding to Edward specifically, but he was responding to all missionaries who were trying to convert his people. He said, You say you are sent to instruct us on how to worship the Great Spirit agreeably to his mind. And if we do not take hold of the religion which you white people teach— we shall be unhappy hereafter. You say that you are right and we are lost. How do we know this to be true? We understand that your religion is written in a book. If it was intended for us as well as you, why has not the Great Spirit given it to us? And not only to us, but why did he not give it to our forefathers, the knowledge of that book, with the means of understanding it rightly? We only know what you tell us about it. How shall we know when to believe and what to believe, being so often deceived by white people? Brother, you say there is but one way to worship and serve the Great Spirit. If there is but one religion, 
Why do you white people differ so much about it? Why can't you all agree, as you can all read the same book? Brother, we do not understand these things. We are told that your religion was given to your forefathers and has been handed down from father to son. We also have a religion which was given to our forefathers and has been handed down to us, their children. We worship that way. It teaches us to be thankful for all the favors we received, to love each other, and to be united. We never quarrel about religion. After six years among the Indians, Edwards took a post as president of Princeton, but he only had it for a month because he died just five weeks after taking the job. He died of smallpox, but that was only because he tried to inoculate himself and ended up giving himself too much smallpox and died from it. There were many people, especially educated people, who believed in inoculations then, but it was a delicate matter getting the dosage right, you see. What they would do is find someone who had it and get some pus from one of their smallpox sores and then scrape some of that pus over self-made bloody scratches in their skin. That was how they delivered the vaccine, so to speak. For many, it worked just fine. Some got too much, and that's what happened to Edwards. He remains a giant in the world of theology. He is studied regularly in schools of divinity for his difficult life as a minister and his voluminous writings about theology. Outside of such circles, the sinners in the hands of an angry God remains his enduring legacy. I leave you now with the final words of exhortation from that sermon. He said, Therefore let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom, haste, and escape for your lives. Look not behind you, escape to the mountains, lest you be consumed. For Beyond Texas, I'm W.F. Strong.